Second Chronicles 1, let's pray and dig into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your Word, truly that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. For those watching on live stream, those that will watch this later, just minister to every heart, we pray. We pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. May your Holy Spirit fall afresh upon us all. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, First Chronicles is just a continuation of Second Chronicles, and originally, they were just one book. And then they were split in half, uh, largely, more than likely, just out of convenience to find verses quicker. Um, and so, what we do know is they kind of have a different focus. So we know that the Chronicles were written to the church, the church, the early believers, right? The followers of Almighty God, who are Israel, who are coming back from Babylonian captivity to Israel, and most specifically, Jerusalem. And so many of those who've been gone for that 70 years really had no understanding of their history. So Chronicles really is simply a history book. And First Chronicles focuses on the history of King David. As we saw last week, as we ended Chronicles, the book ends with David's death. Second Chronicles focuses uh, almost exclusively on King Solomon. So it's a history book for the, for the Jews coming back out of captivity in Babylon. Now, we're going to see this, interestingly enough, the history of Second Chronicles is going to span about 420 years of time. And at the end of the book, it's going to end with them going off into captivity in Babylon. So those coming out of Babylon, when they read First Chronicles, it was things that happened during King David's time. And then they're going to see this, the history all the way up into the time when if they're over 70, they were taken into captivity. If they're under 70, they're going to find out just how they ended up in captivity. So First and Second Chronicles, by the way, the greatest history book ever written, and it's not even close, the Bible. Amen? And so we want to study history. We do it by studying the Word of God. Now, I told the message, grab your outline. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to see in tonight's text, we're going to be introduced in a deeper way to King Solomon. We know he was the son of David. Uh, we know that David was preparing him to take his place. We know that David had accumulated everything that was needed to build the temple. And we're going to see now that Solomon is finally on the throne. And it didn't get there easily. We'll talk about that. And we're going to see that this is the chapter where, the, where God asks him, ask me what you want and I will give it to you. And we're going to see what, can, what he asked for. Most of us know what it is, but we're going to learn something about that. So I tell the message, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So first thing, Lord, one of the things we need to do as believers, if we truly want to fear God, if we truly want to have intimate fellowship with God, the first thing we want to do is seek the Lord. And that's the first thing. These are all examples we're going to find in Solomon in this text. The first thing he's going to do as the new king is he's going to seek the Lord. The Bible says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. How much time do you spend seeking the Lord? How much time do you spend in intimate fellowship with the Lord? We need to spend more time with him. And not only do we seek the Lord, but we, secondly, you're going to see on there, deny the enemy. We're going to see David, I mean David, Solomon, 
dealing with some of his enemies right off the bat. As soon as he becomes king, he's going to rid some of his greatest enemies in a short amount of time. And we too, if we're going to walk in intimate fellowship with God, we too have to put the enemies to death. And the enemies for us are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll talk about that. Give your best uh, to glorify God. We'll see that in this, these first six verses. And then finally, seek the Lord with other believers. As we end the first six verses, they're all going to come together and praise the Lord in unity. You know, one of the things about the word fellowship that gets misunderstood sometimes, certainly fellowship is us, again, uh, communing with each other, but it's really us communing with the Lord. Amen? So when we come on Sunday, we come to be with other believers and to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, but the main reason we come here is to draw closer to the Lord, amen? To have intimate fellowship with Him. Point number two, fear, the, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Ask according to His will, not your wants. Boy, that does not fit with the name and claim it, grab it and blab it crowd at all, Amen. But we don't ask what we want, we ask what God wants. And because you hear me say it all the time, because we're all idiots compared to God, God knows what's best for us. And so we want to come humbly asking the Lord, Lord, what's best for us? Lord, we want your will, not my will. And, and that should be our heart. The maturity in the Christian life is all about learning to live according to God's will, not about getting God to do things your way or our way or my way. So come before him after we you ask according to his will, not our wants. We are to come before him with a heart of humility. We'll see that with Solomon. We're to begin with a heart of thanksgiving, thankful for all the Lord has done for us. Have you ever looked, you know, really taken apart the Lord's Prayer? By the way, it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's, a, it's the model prayer because the Lord's Prayer really comes uh, in another chapter. But what does it say? How does it start off? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. It begins with identifying who we're praying to, and then it begins with praise. And so too, when we come to the Lord, we should begin with thanksgiving with, of what we already have. It's amazing to me that when I thank the Lord for all he's already done for me, I rarely have any care to ask for anything more than he's already given me. I'm already so blessed I can hardly stand it. Amen? Be thankful that in our weakness he is made strong. Trust that the Lord will give you what you need to serve him well. And true wisdom sees its shortcomings. You know, wisdom isn't knowing everything. It's recognizing you don't know everything. Amen? Wisdom is recognizing I need the Lord. I don't have the answer. I told you one of my favorite prayers often is help. And I pray it often. And often it's in a situation where it's just difficult I was counseling two different people on the phone yesterday, and both of them, while they were talking and sharing their hearts with me, and it was very difficult situations, I'm listening, but I'm praying, Lord, help. Lord, help. I need wisdom here, and wisdom only comes from above. And then thirdly, not only seek the Lord and ask according to his will, not our wants, but keep your priorities straight. Solomon asked for wisdom, and God gave him so much more, but then we're going to see, eventually, as we go through, he's going to lose sight of what his priority should be, and he's going to be headed for a heavy-duty fall. He's going to cease making God the priority, and he's going to start, well, we know, what, what was his downfall? Anybody got a guess? Women. Women. Many of them. Amen? Far too many. All right, let's begin there in Second Chronicles chapter 1. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And now it says here in verse 1, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. 
You could hardly have a more seamless transition than this one. We went from King David, and King David died, and then the next verse it says, Now Solomon the son of David was strengthened in his kingdom. David made it very clear that Solomon was to reign in his place, and things had been done and set in place for him to be successful, for the transition to be successful. And no matter how seamless a transition may be, we're going to see in tonight's text, it rarely is. Because whether you have a new king or a new boss or a new pastor or a new, you know, neighbor or whatever, you know, all these things, when you have somebody new come on the scene, that transition is rarely easy. And we're going to see that while it's one of the best transitions we'll ever see in scripture, it still had its own difficulties as we get a little history lesson of what took place. Again, there will always be issues to be dealt with and not everyone was happy about Samson or Samson, Solomon becoming king. So it says there, and Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened. The word strengthened there means to prevail, to harden, be strong, become strong, be courageous, be firm, grow firm, be resolute. He was, his mind was made up. He was strengthened in the power of God, and he was ready to do what he was called to do. And I think as believers, we, we need to pray that God will bring us to that place where we're not timid in our calling, that we see what God has called us to do, and we do it with boldness and faithfulness. Amen? And Lord, help us not to be ashamed or be shy. Or be... And so in 1 Kings 2, we're given a series of events that took place right when Solomon or right before Solomon became king to show you that while this transition seems easily easy from this verse, there were some things that went on. First of all, let me give you a quick history lesson. So how was he strengthened in his faith? Well, first of all, he had to deal with his enemies. And there were several. First of all, there was a guy by the name of Adonijah. Bonus points. How, who is Adonijah? He's one of David's other sons. And Adonijah... Had, had gotten some of the leaders to gather around him and kind of make, proclaim him king even before David had died. And then David, you know, sat up and proclaimed that Solomon was going to be king and Adonijah could have been put to death and Solomon calls him out. You know, you could be put to death, but you know what, pa Pastor Day paraphrase, you be good, I'll let you live. Well, Adonijah, we fast forward a little while after he's king and he goes to Bathsheba and he asks her, that's David's wife, one of his wives, that's so wrong, but one of his wives, and he says to her, can I have David's concubine as my wife? Now this may, first of all, again, another problem. Now this was the concubine, uh, what was her name again? Ab uh, Abisha, it was the one, the electric blanket, do you remember that one? Do you remember when he was cold at night and they brought him in a, a concubine? <laughs> Do you remember that, Tulane? I, I always think of the electric blanket when I think of her. It's cold out. You know, he's old and cold, right? He's old and cold, and they brought him a concubine, and she laid next to him to keep him warm. And, and, uh, but, so this concubine was, was one of his concubines, and by, by Adonijah doing that, what he was doing was he was saying, I'm going to take the place of the king by marrying one of his you know, concubines slash wives. And when Solomon found out about that, he had Adonijah executed. So it wasn't all that simple, this transition. Okay, so again, Solomon was gracious, but Adonijah began to do things that would undermine his role, and Solomon had Adonijah put to death. Uh, 
Then he, Abiatar, the priest that had helped Adonijah, he had him banished. He sent him away and basically let him know, you ever come back, you're dead. Again, not the easiest transition. You had to kill one of your brothers, and now the guy that's the priest, you have to send him away. Then there was a man by the name of Joab, who was David's chief, chief general, who had also helped Adonijah, and he too was put to death. But I would not want to be Adonijah's friend. How about you? And then he took Shimei, the man who had cursed David, and gave him a chance to live. But Shimei blew it, and Solomon put him to death. So the e one of the easiest transitions we see in Scripture wasn't all that easy. And sadly, it's because there are men involved. So what are some of the things that we need to put to death? Well, the three enemies that we ought to be careful of. First is the, wor the world. You know, the world is that invisible sy system directed by Satan, which tries to turn us away from God. The Bible tells us for... Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and there is, this is victory that we overcome the world even in our faith. You know, you keep believing and following Jesus. The world wants to draw you away. The world wants to distract you. And especially today, is there more things that distract us than ever in the history of the world? That, that, that thing, the, the, the digital crack you carry in, the, in your back pocket. I left mine at home tonight. It's a God thing. You know, that thing you carry around that's so addictive that takes your eye, and you, you, can, you can, you know, be looking at that thing, and you look up, it's been an hour, and, you know, and you haven't spent five minutes in the Bible. And so it can be a distraction, and, and the world can distract us. But not only the world, it's the flesh. The flesh is the part of us that loves to rebel against God. We need to learn to be crucified. We, we need to learn to die to ourselves. It says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The way that we put the flesh to death, the only way we can is if we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You walk in the Spirit or you walk in the flesh. If you walk in the, in the Spirit, you will deny the flesh. If you walk in the flesh, you will not be influenced by the Spirit. We need to learn to live under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. It says in Galatians 5, 16, Thus I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the enemies we deal with are the world, the flesh, and then thirdly, the devil. Now, Satan is our enemy. The Bible says he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he knows, while he is not omnipresent and he cannot read your mind, he doesn't have the, the powers anywhere close to Almighty God, he does know human beings. And he knows what your weakness is, and that's what he's going to tempt you with. Now, he is a roaring lion seeking a devour. And then it also says in Ephesians, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." So what do we do when temptation comes, when we're dealing with the enemy? And I will say this, I think it's far more often the world and the flesh than it is the devil. Because why? He's got limited resources, but certainly it is the enemy often, or one of the demons that fell with him from heaven. But we need, how do we deal with the temptation? Well, it tells us in James 4, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He'll run. By the way, I also, I also believe this is pretty clear in Scripture. Satan hates worship. And so, you know what? I love just cranking worship in my car. I love just spending time in God's presence. And the enemy wants no part of that. 
And then we need to put on the whole armor of God. You can read that in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. And, and so we, we have enemies that we deal with every day. And so here, the transition for Solomon in becoming king is he had to take those enemies that were a threat to the kingdom and, and a, a, you know, something that would take away what God had called him to do. And he had to remove those things from his life. And so too, you and I have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Then it says the second part of that verse, and the Lord, his God, was with him, and exalted him exceedingly. The Lord God was with him. Guys, there's nothing better than that, to have the Lord God with you. Amen? He will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've been born again, the Spirit of the living God has come to live inside of you, and he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will walk with you. He will comfort you when you need to be comforted. He will convict you when you're in sin. And praise God for it. And he walks with us. And the Lord God was with him. Now keep in mind in the Old Testament, not uh, very few people had the Holy Spirit. They had an understanding of the truth. But this is before the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all believers in Acts chapter 2, which is hundreds of years away from King Solomon's time. But the Lord would fill people with the Holy Spirit for a time. Remember David, as he was writing the Psalms, said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he had the Holy Spirit upon him. And so Solomon had the Lord upon him. Solomon made a great start to his reign and, and as king, and God blessed it. And his father David left him with every possible advantage, and his kingdom was strong. So David has rid himself, in verse 1, we know he's rid himself of all those enemies that have come along. Solomon has his life kind of laid out for him as far as building the temple He's been exhorted and encouraged by King David. David, as we'll see in the next verse, had already rounded up all the leaders and said, here's your musicians and here's your gatekeepers and here's the guys that are going to help you build the temple and here's the, the army, the guys are going to lead the armies. You got to take some of David's mighty men with you and they're going to stand up for you, Solomon. Verse two, and Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of the thousands and of the hundreds, to the judges and every leader in all of Israel, and the heads of the father's house. So Solomon addresses all the leaders. It's his first time as king. He gathers them all together. All right, where are my guys? He brings them in. The musicians are there. The gatekeepers are there. His, his mighty men that are left over from David's mighty men are there. He's got the leaders from, the, from different tribes. And he brings them all together. And now Dave, uh, Solomon, as the new king, is going to move forward with these people. Verse 3. Then Solomon, with all the assembly with him, so he's got them all with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the table of, ta tabernacle of meeting of God with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So we know at this point, if you've been here, that the Ark of the Covenant has already been removed from Gibeon and brought down into Jerusalem. But Gibeon still has the old tent and the old tabernacle, the place where they would meet. And so the Ark was in one place and the tent was in another, but they went, he brought them all up to the tent and he brought them all up to this place where they could go together and worship the Lord. Now, notice it was a high place. That's not actually a good thing. Um, the idea in ancient times was that you could get closer to God if you're at a higher altitude. And you still have, you know, you have some religions where people will go up on some mountain somewhere and, 
you know, cross their legs and chant and they think it's closer to God. And, and again, the high places were, were most often where all the false gods were worshipped. They're referred to as high places throughout the Old Testament. We'll even see some of that in this, in this book. And so these high places were, again, where all these false idols were set up. We're going to see later that Solomon is going to start taking these women in and he's going to get off track because they're going to bring their false gods and he's going to let them set up all these high places all over the place where they can worship their false gods. Whenever I think of high places, whenever I think of them being everywhere, I think of uh, some, I went to India seven different times and I was there uh, twice on what a, a Hindu holiday called Diwali. And one time I was there when Diwali and the Muslim holiday of Ramadan overlapped. That was interesting. Since about half their country is Muslim, and about half their country is Hindu, and less than 1% is Christian. And so you would walk around, and during Diwali especially, they would set out all these false gods, and I'm not kidding, you could walk down the street and pass 10 gods on your way there. And they would put out these gods and they would put them in different colors and shapes and sizes. So you could have a god that matched your drapes or, you know what I mean? And I remember one time the guy hit it, you know, I was walking by and his table tilted and about 50 gods fell off and broke. And I just said, if your god can break, he ain't god. Can I get him into that? But we, whenever I think of the high places, I think of all these places where these false gods are being put up. Now, at this place, Gibeon, again, this is the place that God had ordained prior this was the place where they were, where the Ark of the Covenant had once been, and they gathered together. It's not a bad thing here, because it's one of the places where Yahweh was worshipped. Now, Gibeon was six miles northwest of Jerusalem. By the way, I just talked to somebody today. I think we're going to try to plan a trip to Israel about one year from right now. So I'll be praying about that, okay? So I talked to a couple of church pastors who want to plan a trip in like October. By the way, you don't want to go to Israel anytime other than like, like March or October, unless you like the heat like me, because the Middle East is hot. Okay. So in Joshua 9, Joshua and the Israelites were tricked into making treaty with these Gibeonites. I don't know if you remember that. And as a result, they were not wiped out, but instead became servants of their nation and pro provi you know, providing uh, wood for the altar of the Lord. So what had happened is they had duped them into thinking they were traveling from a far distance. They made a treaty with them. They found out they were right nearby. And then because they had made a treaty, they didn't die. It says in Joshua 9, 27, and Joshua made them that day hewers of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place where they should choose. So when they were worshiping there, this goes all the way back to those days, back in the time of Moses, when this place was built and it was still there. And notice it says there in verse three, it says, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there. So again, what we had talked about a few moments ago, the tabernacle of meeting, not with other people, but meeting with God. So when they came to the tabernacle, they were with other people, but they came there to meet God. And when we come to church, we come with other people, but we come here to meet the Lord. That's why we're here. If the Lord doesn't show up, this is an absolute waste of time. If we don't teach the Bible, put horns on the wall and call it the Elks Club. Amen? So we want to be in the Word. We want to meet God when we come here. And the tabernacle was a portable worship center that God instructed Moses to build. It was the precursor of the temple. Originally, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle, but the Ark of the Covenant had been brought to Jerusalem. And then it says there, then Solomon... 
Where am I here? Four. Four. There it is. But David brought up, up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place of David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now, so they go up and Solomon worships there, but the ark is in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things we see about the ark here in verse 4, that it's in a tent. And this is one of the reasons that David was so burdened to build the, t- the temple. Why was he? Here's why. Because he lived in a palace. A palace had been built for him. And he would go out and see this little tent. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. And he's like, how can I live in a palace? And the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of Almighty God, is in a tent. I want to build him something far greater than what I live in. I want to make him the priority. I want to make him the, the one who's, who's glorified and lifted up. And right now he's living in a tent. And so it gripped his heart that they, again, were in Jerusalem where the Ark was. It was just a tent. And we're going to see that, again, David, remember that was that point in his life where his number one focus above anything else was getting that temple built. And when he found out from God, because he was a man of blood, a man of war, he could not build the temple, he said, I'm going to get everything done. I'm going to have the Ikea box out and ready to put together. So when Solomon becomes king, all he's got to do is take the pieces out and make it happen. I'm going to have all the tools there. I'm going to have all the craftsmen there. I'm going to have them ready. We can track the progress of the Ark of the Covenant. You ever done this? So Joshua brought the Ark and the, and the tabernacle to Shiloh, Joshua 18. In the days of Eli, the Ark was captured and the tabernacle was wrecked. Then we saw the Ark come back to Kirjath-Jerim in 1 Samuel 7. And then Saul restored the tabernacle at Nob in 1 Samuel 21. And then Saul moved the tabernacle to Gibeon, which where it was in this text, back in 1 Chronicles 16. And then David brought the ark to Jerusalem and built a temporary tent for it. And uh, we see it here. We saw it back in 2 Samuel 6, 17. And there are several reasons that could explain why David did not, again, bring the tabernacle from Gibeon to Jerusalem, because he didn't want a tabernacle. He wanted a temple. He didn't want to bring that old ratty tent that's been out there for hundreds of years and drag it in. He already had a smaller tent where the ark was taking place. And he said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give God that. I don't want to give God halfway. I don't want to give him the leftovers. I don't want to give him some old beat up thing. That's I want to make for him something worthy of him. And guys, we should give to him what is worthy of him. We shouldn't give God our leftovers or, you know, at the end of the day or whatever we've got left. We want to give God the best that we have. Amen. And that's what we see here taking place. Maybe that David was simply focused on building the temple. I think that's the case. And again, the tabernacle was not, was not moved when it, again, was necessary. And so they just left it there. And, so, and then it says there in verse 4 again, it said, We had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. And again, the tabernacle is still in Gibeon, but the ark was moved to Jerusalem where David made a separate little tent for it. And it was the ark being in a tent in Jerusalem again that pierced David's heart to build the temple. Sometimes it's when we see just, we get a perspective sometimes where we're doing something and then we see that something that could be and should be done for the Lord is so much more important than whatever it is we're spending our time doing. And we say, you know what, I'm just going to stop. I don't have time for this anymore. I need to go do this. And that's what happened to King David. 
King David was a mighty warrior. King David was a rich man. King David had defeated his foes. Uh, everybody in the planet was afraid of King David because of King David's God. And King David could have easily just rested. He could have just caught, gotten caught up in chasing after money, but he didn't do that. His priority was that God would be glorified. Verses five and six. Look what it says here. Now, in the bronze altar of Bezethel, and the son, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, he made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, Solomon, the assembly, sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now, first thing we want to see here is that this, is, this was built by Bezalel. That's Exodus chapter 38. This thing's 500 years old. It's a 500-year-old, uh, again, altar that was created, again, during the time of Exodus. Solomon and the assembly uh, came to seek the Lord in that place. And you'll notice that when Solomon, as king, is making his first public sacrifice to the Lord, he doesn't give God the leftovers. It says he makes a thousand sacrifices. Now, we can read through verses like this. And do you have any clue how bloody a thousand sacrifices might have been? You know, I cut fresh steaks and there's blood, you know, there's a lot of blood. Can you imagine a thousand sacrifices and all the blood that must have been running all around that altar and all the blood that was taking place? And can you imagine how good it was smelling when that stuff started frying up? Amen. The ultimate barbecue. God loves barbecue. It's in the Bible. It's right here. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. But a thousand, and I think it's the point is being made to all who are there, all the gatekeepers, all the leaders, all of his military leaders. They're all there with him, and he's making it very clear. We are going to sacrifice to God the best of what we have. We're not going to give him half of it. We're not going to give him part of it. We're going to give him all of it. See, Solomon's going to start well. And sadly, this is the case for too many people. We can start well, but real, what really matters is how we finish, amen? And too many times you see people start really well and they seem to be thriving and then they get distracted, something happens and before you know it, they don't finish well. It's almost a grotesque amount of sacrifices and both Solomon's great wealth and his heart to glorify God come together here as he makes a thousand offerings. So point number one there, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And Solomon, how did, what is the first thing he does? Is he seeks the Lord. And the first thing we should do, I would encourage you to begin your day doing that. Begin your day, spend your day, end your day. Seek the Lord. Again, I've told you this many times, but when I wake up in the morning, it's just something God put on my heart years ago. First thing I say is, yes, Lord, your servant hears. It comes from Samuel, where Samuel is told by uh, the, uh, Eli that uh, he goes, hey, he keeps saying, you're, you're calling me. He's like, no, I'm not. He says, you're calling me. No, I'm not. He says, next time that, that you hear the voice say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And, so, and Samuel cried out, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And so just begin your day just to get your focus on the Lord. You know, I don't even want to put my feet out of the bed on the ground until I've talked to the Lord, right? I want him to guide every step. And, and I need that, right? We all do. We never arrive. Amen. Point number two, ask according to his will, not your wants. Ask according to his will, not your wants. And on that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what you shall 
and I, I will get, uh, ask what shall I give you? He basically says, ask me for whatever you want. Now, how many of you like to hear that tomorrow morning from God? Whenever I teach this or talk about it, people are like, throw me that one. <laughs> hey, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now, I do, I do not believe that God would have given him anything he wanted. Uh, he was testing Solomon. Amen? What if Solomon said, I want a thousand women? Well, yeah, he ended up getting that, and that didn't work out too well. Amen? <laughs> but I think if Solomon asked contrary to the word, he's saying, look, ask of me. And the hope is you find out what your perspective is. When I asked you that question, this is between you and the Lord. When I said, if, you know, if the Lord said, I'll give you whatever you want, what was the first thing in your mind? A hundred million dollars? Or was it maybe a relative that needs Jesus? Or was it maybe uh, the spouse you've been waiting for or something like that? And so here's, Solomon gets asked the question. And this is a young man, by the way, by now, so... He knew he was going to become king in his teens. He could have been as old, maybe now as 20, but probably younger than that. So he's either a, t- a late teen or, a, you know, like a 20-year-old kid. He's a young man. And you ask a 20-year-old, say, hey, what do you want? Oh, get out of the way, right? Well, he's not going to ask for the best, the best chariot in town. He's not going to ask for gold and silver. And, and this is a sign that God is doing a work in this young man's heart. Just understand this. God is not your genie. Amen. He's not the holy Santa Claus in the sky either. We don't tell God. We don't make demands of God. We don't, you know, you, God, you need to do this. And, and the sad part is I've heard people pray that way. And when they're standing next to me, I usually kind of move out a little bit, right? You know, God, I, I, could, I demand that you, I claim that you, I demand that you. We don't do that. Amen? We don't tell God anything. We come humbly before God and ask him according to his will, not ours. Amen? And again, I don't really believe that he would have given him anything he asked for. I do believe that he was testing Solomon. He was looking to see what was in Solomon's heart. I wrote this down. I like this. Um, after I wrote it down, I thought I wrote the, I'm going to write in the back of my Bible. Maturity in the Christian life is all about learning to live according to God's will, not about getting God to do things your way. Let me say that again. Maturity in the Christian life It's all about learning to live according to God's will, not about getting God to do things your way. When we pray, we're not praying to change God's mind, but to change our hearts. We want to align our hearts with his. His heart is perfect. He knows what he's doing. We want to walk in the center of his will. He is God. He is Lord. He is the creator, and you are not, and neither am I. Amen? And God's purpose for your life is to get you to conform your life toward his way. And God's desire that we always learn to pray as Jesus did in the garden. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And again, you might be thinking, I wish God would make that offer to me. Well, guess what? I'm going I'm to blow the bubble for it. He already has. Read Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. God, God gave you that promise. If you come seeking from him according to his will, he will answer that prayer. Amen? Now we ask according to our will, he'll answer that prayer and he'll say no. Amen? God answers all prayer and he's a faithful God. And so the Lord appeared to him. We know that you know here, here he is. The Lord appears to him at, at night. God appeared to Solomon. Have you ever wondered who God appearing to him was? I think it's Jesus. 
God, God, now, can God, can God, well, God appeared in a burning bush, right? Right? God can appear any way he wants to, but it doesn't say how he appeared to him. We don't know for sure, but it could have been the Lord just showing up going, hey, bro, so <laughs> ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And again, God would say the same to us. You know what? Here's a good promise, some promises found in word. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. If you're abiding in the Lord, if you're walking in intimate fellowship with the Lord, if you have that, that, that intimate relationship with him, you will ask according to his will because you're spending time in his presence and you will know his will. It says in 1 John 5, 14, which we will look at on Sunday. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God's promises are according to his will, not our fleshly wants. So he says, ask, what shall I give you? Verse eight, and Solomon said to God, you have shown me great mercy show great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. So the first thing that we see David does when he's asked to ask God for anything, he begins first with a heart of thanksgiving. You know, you, you, you bless my dad, and then you showed mercy to let me take my dad's place. And so the first thing he does when he's asked for anything he wants, he first just thanks God. He thanks the Lord for his grace. He thanks the Lord Again, for the fact that God gave mercy to his father and made him king in his place. So Solomon's response, again, comes from a heart of humility. Notice what it says there in verse 9. Now, O Lord, let your promise to David my father be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. So again, he starts off with thanksgiving. Notice how he comes in humility before God. He doesn't come in making demands of God. He doesn't tell God what to do. And, and there's few things that make, make me sicker to the stu- in my stomach than when I hear that. And you'll see people do that. I've had people tell me when I pray according to God's will, you got to stop praying that way because you're just, you're, you're, that's faithless prayer. You have to tell God what to do. No. I always tell them, show me a Bible verse for that and I'll start doing it. You're taking a text out of context. You know what that makes you? A con. Amen? So Solomon's response, the God's amazing offer, he doesn't just blurt something out. Notice that. First thing he says is, oh, thank you for showing mercy and letting me be the king. And then he says there in verse 9, let your promise to my father be established that, you know, you're going to multiply the, the nation and you're going to bless us. And I, I just pray for what you've already promised. So he doesn't just say, oh, goody, goody, goody. There's the genie. Now let him tell me what I, what I want. First thing he does is he humbles himself and he thanks the Lord, comes with that heart of thanksgiving. And again, I just love that heart. Now look at verse 10. Here it is. Now he's going to give us the answer for what it is that he would like the Lord to. To give him, it says, Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? He asked for wisdom, but not for himself, but so he can minister to others. And this is a prayer I identify with, and most of us, I'm sure, in the room do, because anytime we're called by God to minister to somebody else, we know that if we get in the way, we will mess it up. And so our heart often should be, Lord, give me the wisdom and the knowledge 
to be able to minister to the people you've called me to minister to. Lord, I can't do this without you. I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick secret. You probably already know it. During the last worship song, I'm usually got my, I'm usually, or when Joshua's praying, I'm right there praying, Lord, please show up, please show up, please show up. Lord, I can't do this without you. Lord, you got to show up. Lord, you got to move in a mighty and powerful way. Fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. Just take me out of the way, please, Lord, for the sake of your people. And that's almost what David's, I mean, uh, Solomon's, he's like, can you give me wisdom so I can minister to these people? Give me wisdom and knowledge so I can care for this nation. That He's not saying, give me wisdom and knowledge so I can win at Jeopardy, right? He's saying, give me wisdom and knowledge so I can minister to the people you've given me. And I think whatever we're called to, whether it's children's ministry or men's ministry or youth ministry, or we're called to serve in a practical way, our prayer should be, Lord, give me what I'm going to need to faithfully be able to minister to your people in a way that's glorifying and honoring to your name. Help me, Lord. I desperately need this. I cannot do this without it. Wisdom isn't, again, believing we know everything. Wisdom is recognizing that we'll never know everything and that we'll always need the Lord's help. Again, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. See, when we have a fear of God, a reverence for God, a fear for just who he is, it does bring us to a place of desperation before him. The word there where he talks about, give me, uh, in verse 10 there, it says, give me wisdom and knowledge. Again, knowledge there, literally, he said, the word is a, a, a hearing heart. Give me a heart that understands. And he asked for what he needed to rule well, to serve well. One of my prayers is, Lord, give me what I need to be the best worker, the best husband, the best father, you know, to be that whatever those things that God has called you to do in your life. And we need the Lord's help because without him, we just cannot do it. Without him, I can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To remain usable by God, we must remain humble, broken, and desperate. And Solomon had knowledge, and he wanted godly wisdom and understanding that he might serve God and his people well. He wanted to lead them well, and we must have wisdom and discernment to lead. I believe that's true in your workplace, your neighborhood, leading other people in any way, shape, or form. We all need wisdom and discernment to do what God has called us to do. We need to walk in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Lord respond to Solomon's request? Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, how is he going to respond? Look at verse 11. Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for riches or wealth or, or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have to have a long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. So again, the Lord's making it clear, you know, you could have asked to wipe out all your enemies. That would have been I wouldn't be a bad ask, right? Wipe out all my enemies so I don't have any more problems. I don't have to kill another Adonijah. Just wipe out all my enemies. Destroy all the enemies all around the world that are going to get in my... He didn't ask for that. Give me all the riches in the world. I want to be the richest man who ever lived. Boy, when you got a lot of money, you can solve a lot of problems. But we know riches aren't the answer. Could have asked for cattle and horses. He could have asked for a lot of different things, but he didn't. He didn't ask for a long life either. Lord, let me live to be a thousand years old. By the way, I would never ask for that on this planet. I don't know about you. 
I don't want a hundred. I don't want, I don't want to catch you. I want to be anywhere near where Jack got in Jesus name. Amen. I want to be in heaven long before then, but that's not what he asked for. He asked for God to pour out upon him what he would need to be able to faithfully minister to God's people. Boy, can there be a better prayer. And then he says in verse 12, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you uh, have the like. So the richest man who ever lived on this planet was Solomon. And Solomon was blessed by God with riches because what he asked for was wisdom. And you know what? God will tend to, you know, as my buddy Pastor Rob says, if you can get it through you, he'll get it to you. And you know, if a man has godly wisdom, he's a man that God can give things to and he won't hold tight to them. He'll use them for the kingdom of God and for his glory. If he has an eternal perspective and if he prays the way that Solomon prayed. Now, is Solomon going to stick to this? What do you think? If you've read the Bible, you know the answer. What is it? No. Solomon is going to crash and burn all over the highway. And because he's going to start well and he's going to start humble and he's going to start desperate and he's going to say, I just want to, I just want to serve your people, nothing else, Lord. Can you just let me serve your people? And I need wisdom to do it. So can you give me the wisdom to serve your people? And he's going to give him riches. And in the beginning, he's going to use it for God's glory. He's going to build him the temple and he's going to make it a glorious temple where God will be worshiped and praised. But sadly, like all of us, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of what we're really called to do and who we're really called to be. So point number two, they're asked according to his will, not your wants. Maturity in the Christian life is all about learning to live according to God's will, not, a, not about getting God to do things your way. You know, true wisdom will see its shortcomings. A truly wise person will be humble and will recognize there's area of my life that I need, to help, I need help with. Most, and I'm sure you, know, you guys all know my testimony. And one of the biggest struggles for Lent and I was always my kids. From 2009 on, it was a struggle. What do we do? How do we care for them? What do we do for them? How do we, you know, we did the tough love. We did the, we did the t- send them all to, to rehab. We did the let them stay home. And, and no matter what we did, it didn't, you know, we just struggled. And we would cry out to God constantly. And there's many other things in my life just like that where we can't fix it. We can't do it. You know what it does? It gets you on your knees crying out to Almighty God. Amen. You come to that place where I can't fix this, Lord. I don't know what to do. Help. Amen. And this is where Solomon starts. He starts with, Lord, I need wisdom. I need to know how. You just made me king. I'm 20 years old. You might be 18. I'm a young man. And I'm now the king over the most powerful nation in the world because it's your people. And you put all your people in my hand. I'm just a kid and I'm not like my dad. My dad was a man of war. I'm not. My dad was a, a, a mighty man of faith, and I'm not yet, and I need help. And so he says, Lord, give help. Give me wisdom, Lord. I need it. Lord, give me knowledge. Show me how to minister to your people. That should be our prayer for all of us. Amen. God was pleased not only by what Solomon asked for, but what he didn't ask for. See, I think our prayer, our prayer life reflects where we are spiritually, not just by what we ask for, but by what we don't ask for. By the way, how many of you guys enjoyed the prayer time on Sunday? We're going to do that again, I promise. And I'm not going to tell you ahead of time, because there's people, this is what happened in Santa Cruz. People were like, oh yeah, they pray on the third Sunday of every month at church. 
I, I'm not going because I don't. I, I, I don't like that. It makes me nervous. It makes me nervous. I can't do that. Even if I tell them, just stand in the circle and say nothing. I, I, I don't like that. I so, so people don't come, <laughs> right? They get that weebie-jeebie. So now I'm just going to drop it on you. You know, I'm, we're going to get in circles right now. And you know, the truth is, though, once you do it, don't you grow in it? Amen? It's hard at the beginning, but it's, it's always worth it. It should make my father's house a house of prayer. prayer. We need to pray more. And that's on me completely. I, that's my fault. We need to pray more, and uh, we all need to pray more. Can I get an amen to that? So we see here that he passes the test because he doesn't ask amiss. It's not just what he asked for, it's what he didn't ask for. He didn't ask for things that would feed his flesh. He didn't ask for things that would make him famous. You know, he's already going to be. He didn't ask for anything other than what God really wanted him to ask for. And because he asked for that, God blessed him with more than what he asked for. Now, God's smart enough, if you try to pull that trick on him, I'm going to ask him what I know he wants me to ask for, and then he'll give me all the other stuff. Don't do that. That's Solomon. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) People will do that. But I just love this picture. And again, sometimes I think God allows things into our lives to test us to see where our heart is. What is the focus of your prayer life? What do you ask the Lord for? What are your personal desires, wants, and comforts? To live a life that glorifies God and touches others or to live a life that feeds your fleshly desires. So we need to have the right priorities when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to our life. The lesson here is not about becoming rich and powerful. The lesson is about, again, what your priority are. Again, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Key to a faithful and uh, a fruitful and faithful life is walking in intimate fellowship with God. And Samson asks for a good thing, but we do not see the depths of intimacy that David has with God ever in Solomon's life. See, he prays a good prayer here, but he doesn't live it out. And the one thing we know about King David, now Solomon wrote, you know, a lot of the Proverbs. He had wisdom, but David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And what are Psalms? What are they? They're worship songs. David had a heart of worship. David was a man who was alone with the sheep and the, you know, watching the, keeping the, the wolves and the bears and the tigers away and lions away. And it was all preparation for him to be a mighty man of God who would slay a man like Goliath. And so when we're going through the thing, those times in our life, no suffering is wasted. Everything we go through is preparation for what God has for us next. And again, sometimes we'll wonder, why, why do I go through this and nobody else does? Why do I have this disease when nobody else does? Why do I suffer uh, financially maybe when nobody else seems to? Why, why do I have you know, prodigal sons and daughters when not as many people do? Why did my son go to heaven when other people's didn't? And again, we just have to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God that he knows what he's doing and thank him in the midst of the trials and praise him for it. Amen? And trust him no matter what. Solomon's lack of intimacy with God is going to show up later in life when he walks away from the Lord and after the gods of all his pagan wives. And that's the only way we can finish strong is if we remain desperate. As soon as we cease to be desperate, we cease to be usable. As soon as we cease to be desperate, we we cease growing in our relationship with the Lord. I love this. It's a soldier's prayer. I just saw this today. I'd never seen it before. You know, so often we ask amiss, not walking in intimate fellowship with God. This is a soldier's prayer from the time of the Civil War. Here's what it says. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. 
I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked God for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but got everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people the most, rich, the most richly blessed. I think sometimes when I pray, I'm asking for the wrong things. How about you? Lord, help us. Final point, number three there. So we've seen seek the Lord, ask according to his will, not our wants, and keep your priorities straight. Look what happens in verse 13. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place, it was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. So his, his public ministry, if you will, in a certain way, began with him worshiping. It began with him seeking the Lord. It began with him making sacrifices. And now he comes down from this place of worship, and now he is seated in that place where he's going to reign over Israel. So Saul actually reigned or began to reign in great wisdom that God gave him at Gibeon. A famous example of his wisdom is found in 1 Kings 3, 16. Remember when he judges between the two mothers? You guys remember that? So there's that wisdom that came because he asked for it. And people today, you know, I, I would venture to guess that in our country, 90% of the people on this planet know that story. Amen? You know, oh, it's my baby. It's my baby. Cut it in half and split it. No, don't kill it. Oh, it's hers. Amen, <laughs> right? And you know, you're like, wisdom, wisdom. And God had given him that wisdom because he asked for it. And because he had that wisdom, he was able to give the answer that needed to be given. And he knew how to, to deal with people in the, in the midst of great tra you know, a great difficult uh, position to be in. How do I know who's telling the truth? And God gave him the wisdom to do it, to oversee and again to minister to his people. But notice what happens here. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Now, why is that an issue? It's about to become one. Because remember, the one thing the Lord told them not to multiply was horses. They were told not to multiply horses. Why? Because they would put their faith in their army. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And David's already, now he's wealthy, and maybe at this point, it's not really the issue yet, but it's going to become an issue for him later. The famous stables of Solomon show that he had a cavalry he assembled for Israel, massive cavalry. Uh, cavalry. And uh, unfortunately, it also shows that Solomon did not take God's word seriously in Deuteronomy 17, 16, when God spoke, said, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. And that's speaking of the king. Then notice what it says there. So he made chariots and it says, also he made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now it's silver and gold is as common as a, a gallon of gas, right? It says, he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. So Solomon is, again, he's asked for wisdom of God. And now what is he doing? Instead of riches and fame, God promised to give Solomon riches and fame as a, a 
an outpouring of him asking for what was right. So these riches initially, not yet are they an issue, but they're going to be down the line. But initially God is blessing him and he he's, has all these riches. It's all preparation for him to faithfully serve the people, to defend the people, to do the, all God was preparing him to do. But just like anything else, if God gives you something and it's to be used for his glory and not yours, and when we start to use it for ours, we're losing sight. And that's exactly, sadly, what will take place in the life of Solomon. Not yet, but it will. Solomon presided over a prosperous and wealthy kingdom. Yet the chronicler also warns us here. He assumes that we know the instructions for further kings, that they're also not to multiply gold and silver for themselves. So he's multiplying horses. He's multiplying gold and silver. Those were warnings in Deuteronomy. If he had known the word, God would give him riches, but he's multiplying the very things that he's told not to multiply. Initially, it's not going to be a problem, but it's going to be a problem pretty soon. And again, sadly, that can happen to all of us if we take our eyes off the Lord for even a moment. Notice he says there uh, in verse 16, And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva. And the king's merchants brought them in, Kiva, at the current price. So he's, he's multiplying horses. And then it finally, the end of that chapter says, they also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they imported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Syrians. So here's what's taking place. He has become a wealthy man. He's, he's using the, the riches that, that God has given him. And he's, some of the things he's buying, depending on how you interpret scripture, are things he shouldn't have. He should have trusted in the Lord. He's building up, again, the army when a lot of it was um, meant for the uh, tabernacle of God. So they may explain why Solomon breaks an obvious commandment because Perhaps the importation of horses from Egypt began as a trading and, and he would, becomes a trader. And from this, perhaps Solomon could say, I'm importing horses, but I'm not doing it for myself. I'm not breaking God's command to multiply horses for myself. And guys, we, we will sometimes try to do that, say, well, I know this is ungodly, but I'm not doing exactly that. I'm only doing kind of like that. I'm only near that. Guys, we shouldn't see how close to fire we can get and not get burned. Amen? We want to be as far away from those things that tempt us. You know, I've got several friends that used to smoke. They're like, I don't smoke anymore. I vape. I'm like, dude, what do you think the difference is? Amen? But that mentality of, you know, and again, I, you know, I don't want to pick on smoking. It is what it is. We want to, we want to be healthy, but, you know, we could pick on vapes and when we're eating a dozen donuts a day. I'm not sure which one's worse, but the point made here is that we need to be careful that Solomon, you know, and again, only God knows Solomon's heart here, but we know it's going to, it's not going to take him long to get away from where he's supposed to be. And what is he doing right off the bat? Some of the things he's using with the wealth. And so, and again, for a wise man, he has a thousand wives. He's not that wise. Amen. You know, obviously he's, he was given all the capability for these things and not in very long time, he gets far, far away from them. Let me give you a, a last thing here just to show you the decline of King Solomon. It's hard to know in what order Solomon's compromise was expressed. It is possible to say that his disobedience is uh, seemingly 
small command began to downfall. Right, he just violated one small command for another. So first, in disobedience, he multiplies horses for the service of his kingdom that he, obeyed, that he obtained from the Egyptians. Then, because of his connections with Egypt, he married Pharaoh's daughter. See, he starts trading horses with the Egyptians when he's not supposed to be doing that. And then because he's trading horses with the Egyptians, what happens? He meets Pharaoh's daughter. And I have an idea. She was pretty. And he's like, wow, so I'll make a deal with you. Give me her. And now he takes Pharaoh's daughter. Well, then he started, marrying an, uh, he started with marrying an Egyptian. Then he married many other foreign women. Then because of the presence of the foreign wives, he built temples to their gods so they could go worship their gods. Then because of the presence of their temples, he began to worship their other gods. Do you see how this one little compromise leads to another one, which leads to another one, which leads to another one. And before you know it, you went from here to all the way over there. Nobody goes from a loving, wonderful, married life to committing adultery in a day. It doesn't happen. It's that... One little compromise, you're arguing with your wife, and then the lady at work, she's all complimentary, and she's telling you how handsome you are. My wife hasn't said that in a while. And I left home, and my wife was still getting you know, her face on, and this lady's all dolled up wearing a $1,200 suit. And then this one wants to go to lunch, and you know, my wife didn't cook dinner last night, so I'll just go to lunch. And before you know it, the lips of an adulterous woman drip with honey, and the path to her house leads to hell. Amen? So look at that again, real quickly. It started by multiplying horses, and he, and he was doing bargaining with the Egyptians. Then because of the connections with Egypt, he married Pharaoh's daughter. And then because he started marrying Egyptians, he started marrying other foreign women. And then because he had the presence of foreign wives, he built temples for them to use. And because of the temples, he began to worship false gods himself. And Solomon ends up far away from God. Lord, help us. Amen not to fall into that same trap. May we keep our priorities straight. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen? So the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, for us as believers, following the good things in his example, seek the Lord above all, all else. Make him the priority and the passion of your life. Decide tonight you're going to spend time with him tomorrow. You're going to seek the Lord. You're going to make him a priority. Deal with the enemy in your life. Put the flesh to death. The world, the flesh, and devil. Ask according to his will, not our wants. God knows what you want and what you need, but we need to ask according to his will because he knows what's best. And then finally, keep your priorities straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's living and breathing. And we thank you, Lord, for the exhortations and examples that we saw tonight. We can all fall into these traps. Help us, Lord, to begin by looking up. Help us, Lord, to begin by seeking your will above all else. Help us, Lord, to put the flesh to death daily. Help us, Lord, to honor you and seek you above all else, to seek first your kingdom. Then secondly, Lord, I pray that we'd ask according to your will, not our wants. Not telling you what we want, but, Lord, asking you to pour out what we need, to give us what we need, to help us with what we need. And then finally, Lord, help us to keep our priorities straight to make you the, the priority and the passion of our lives above all else. Lord, we love you. We praise you. I ask in Jesus' name that you pour out your spirit upon everyone here. Fill us afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen.